In our study of the Catechism, we've come now to question 81. Question 81, which asks us this question, who should come to the Lord's table? And that, of course, also is the title of the sermon this evening. Who should come to the Lord's table? The answer given us is those who are displeased with themselves because of their sins, but who nevertheless trust that their sins are pardoned and that their remaining weakness is covered by the suffering and death of Christ, and who also desire more and more to strengthen their faith and, lead, and to lead a better life. Hypocrites and those who are unrepentant, however, eat and drink judgment on themselves. Now you'll remember last week that we considered the doctrine of transubstantiation and of consubstantiation, uh, big terms for concepts, right, that the Roman Catholics and the Lutherans used to explain the presence of Christ at the sacrament. How is Christ present at the sacrament? Now this question actually flows from that whole understanding because you can imagine that if the actual body of Christ is present on the table of the Lord, that when a person eats that body of Christ, again, whether it be the, the Lutheran idea of that the bread, of, the bread and wine are mixed somehow with the real body and blood of Christ, or the Roman Catholic idea, right, that there's nothing of bread and wine left, only the body and blood of Christ is on the table, then by eating that, you would bring a blessing to yourself, again, as, as they explain it, simply by eating of it, right? It would not be something that would, that would be uh, for your faith. It is not some spiritual, I mean, you would receive a spiritual blessing from it, say, these, uh, the Catholics and the Lutherans, but it's by eating the actual physical body of Jesus. And so everyone eats. Everyone that came to the table and partook of, again, they would only give you the, the uh, bread, right? You don't, you don't drink the wine in those churches. But everybody who ate that bread would be eating the literal body of Jesus and would then receive a blessing from it. The, the, uh, the expression in Latin is ex opera, operata, which you can even hear in the expression, right? By the operation, or by the operating, it operates. In other words, by the eating, it blesses. Just by eating it, you're blessed by it. Now, to the Reformed, right, and to all the other Protestant churches, because it's a spiritual uh, presence of Christ at the table, Christ can only be received by faith. Right? If it's the physical body of Jesus on the table, then you would receive it in your mouth, in your tongue, in your teeth, just like normal food. But if it's a spiritual presence of Jesus at the table, as we, uh, as we uh, again, considered with you last week, at some length, then it's received by faith. And so an unbeliever who partakes of communion receives no blessing from it. In fact, he brings a curse on himself because he profanes the holy things of God, the bread and the wine. So apart from faith, the sacrament remains empty. And that's what the question then is giving us, basically teaching us that only believers receive a blessing from participating in the Lord's Supper. Now, the next question in the Catechism is very closely related to this, and actually this kind of caught me uh, this week too as I was looking at this. Question 82, and I'll just say this now, we're not going to consider question 82 tonight, but question 82 sounds very similar. It says, should those be admitted to the Lord's Supper who show by what they profess and how they live that they are unbelieving and ungodly? Now, the difference between question 81 and question 82 is question 82 is directed to you 
and to me personally as believers. Because the question is, who should come to the Lord's Supper? Who should come to the Lord's table? And that is only those who believe in Jesus, who are Christians, true Christians. But now question 82 is a matter for the church, and especially the leadership of the church. Should those be admitted to the Lord's Supper who show by what they profess and how they live that they are unbelieving and ungodly? And so Ursinus, in his catechism, makes this very clear that question 81 is directed to individual believers because only you know your heart. Right? And sometimes even we struggle to know our own heart. But certainly the leadership of the church can't know your heart. But the leader of the, of the church looks at what you profess and how you live. Right? And that's what we're limited to as the leadership of the church. So question 82 is for the church leadership. Question 81 is for individual believers to examine their own heart. Well, let's turn then to, question, er, to 1 Corinthians 10 to find an answer to this question of who may partake of the Lord's table. Now I'm going to begin, I'm just kind of go verse by verse here through this. Uh, we already had a sermon on this uh, two weeks ago, I believe. But at any rate, I want to look at this again. So at 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 16, the apostle then speaks about what I'm calling uh, on your outline there, a vertical union. That is, a union between the believer and Christ. Which again, we've said, the, the, the moment a person believes in Christ they are joined in a saving union to Christ. And that union happens immediately when a person believes. There is that union already established, a vertical union. But at communion, at the Lord's table, you might say we receive the fruit of that union. That, that union is almost, if I could say, it's like activated in a powerful way, in a unique way, and a mysterious way to us. Remember, I, I said I, I cannot explain what that is. In 1 Corinthians 10, verse 16, the apostle the apostle simply says, is not the cup of blessing which we bless a sharing or a participating or a union with the blood of Christ? And that's all he tells us, right? That it's a union with the blood of Christ. But by that union, remember I called it a sacramental union. By that union, we are fed and nourished on our way to eternal life, as our catechism teaches us. The, uh, the Paul goes on, he says, is not the bread which we break a sharing or a participating, a union with the body of Christ. So there is that vertical union established when we believe in Christ and we receive so much fruit from it and so much blessing from it, especially at the time of communion. But it's vertical, it's between God and the sinner, between God and the believer. But now the apostle goes on to speak about a horizontal union in verse 17. He says, since there is one bread... We who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. So the apostle is saying that we are many, right? There are many different people here, many different backgrounds. There are men, there are women, there are rich, poor, there are all kinds of people. And in the Corinthian church, it was much more dramatic because, again, you remember that the city of Corinth was a very cosmopolitan city, right? A very a city with a, a harbor on both sides. I don't know if you remember me talking about that, but there were, there were slaves in the Corinthian church, there were very wealthy people. But Paul says, we are many, are one body. In our union with Christ, we become one body. We all stand on the same ground. And then he says, why? For we all partake of the one bread. In other words, uh, and again, the, the idea here being one loaf, right? That the apostle would tear off one piece of bread, and from that one loaf, each person would receive. But, says Paul, when you partake of the bread of the Lord's Supper, 
You're professing. You're making a public display that you are one, not just or vertically with God, that's the most important, but also horizontally with your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. So there's also that manifestation then at the Lord's table of our union as believers together horizontally. Paul says that in verse 17. Now as the, the apostle's mind works, right, he often jumps to another topic and then returns to the previous topic. So in verse 18, we come back to the original topic again, talking about that union between Christ and the believer. He says, look at the, at the nation Israel. So this is an example. He's going to give an illustration of the truth that he's just uh, taught. In verse 18, he says, look at the nation Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices sharers, and there's that word sharing again, in the altar? And again, now he's talking about the Israelites bringing their sacrifices, and in some of the sacrifices, they would divide up the animal. Part of that animal would go on the altar. Part of that animal, they would eat themselves. And now Paul is saying, when they put that portion on the altar, what are they saying? They are giving God his portion. And they are united, they are, they are joined with that altar. God, because again, God isn't, God isn't going to pull up a chair and sit at a table, right, at that meal, right? So the way that's represented in Old Testament worship is the way you, you give God a place at the table is you put a portion for God on the altar. And that altar represents God. And so the apostle says in verse, uh, verse 18, that the nation of Israel, when they brought their sacrifices, they were joined with. They were, they were united in, in a very, again, a, a deeply mysterious way to that altar. And of course, not to the altar, but to the God that is represented by that altar. So this is a, an illustration of what happens when we have communion. We are joined to God, just as Israelite, Israel was joined to God when they brought their sacrifices and they put a portion on the altar for God. So that's the example he gives. Then in verse 19, a clarification. Basically, Paul now saying, well, am I saying that idols are anything? Now this, this is because, again, the, the problem in Corinth is that the Corinthian Christians were worshiping or were participating in pagan worship services. They're participating in pagan worshipers. And Paul says in verse 14, that's really the, the head of this, therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Don't participate in those services, says Paul. And in verse 19, he's saying, well, does that mean that when you go to a pagan worship service and you now join yourself to the pagan gods that there really are idols? That the idols are really, they really exist? No, 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 says Paul. There's no such thing as an idol. That's nonsense. But what really happens then in verse 20 is that these Gentiles are sacrificing to demons. And when you participate in pagan worship services, you are joining yourself again. Do you, you get the idea that the whole idea of uniting one, of being united to something, is, is so foundational to understanding these verses. And Paul says when you go to a pagan worship service, you're joining yourself in that kind of union to the demons that are present at those services. And then verse 21, and that's our text this evening. Because Paul says, you fools, you can't do that. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. And what he's saying there is, is you can't sit at the Lord's table and drink the cup of the Lord, which again means you're participating or you're sharing in, you're joined to the blood of Christ. And then go to a pagan worship service and join yourself to the demons that are present at those services by drinking the cup of, 
What does he say here? The cup of demons. Again, don't miss the, 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 the picture here. The cup means this union. It's the whole idea, right, of, of being united to whatever you're drinking to. Okay, and when we drink at the Lord's Supper, we're joining ourselves to the, to the blood of Christ and his atonement. But if you drink the cup of demons, then how are you going to turn around and come and, and participate in the Lord's Supper? Who are you joined to? Are you, are, you, are you joined to the demons or are you joined to Christ? And that's what Paul says here. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. You can't, you can't pull up a chair and have a meal with God. Remember, in previous sermons we said that that meal represents the, the ratification of a covenant between you and God. All the while that you sit at a table with demons and, and have a covenant with them too? I mean, I guess the best illustration of this, my friends, is as husband and wife, right? You can't join yourself to another woman, right? I mean, we instantly understand what that means, right? You can't. That is, that is even secular worldly people understand that that is unthinkable. And that's what Paul's talking about here. You can't be joined to Christ and joined to demons. So what's the conclusion then from this from this teaching that we have here? Well, the conclusion is simple, right? That the Lord's Supper is meant for those who are already in union with Christ. That union must already be in place if we're going to participate in the Lord's Supper with a blessing. So there's a difference here, isn't there? Because we have two doors in the back of the church, right? And we open those doors to everybody, no matter how silly you might look. Right? No matter how dreadful you might be dressed, right? Or how bad you might smell. It doesn't matter, right? We let everybody in those doors and we preach the gospel to everybody and we call everybody to Christ and we preach, right, that Christ welcomes all with open arms the sinners come to Christ and can be forgiven. Right? We don't, we don't reserve that message of the gospel just for certain people. No. The, 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 the worst sinner is welcome to Jesus Christ. And now it's different, isn't it, when we have the table of the Lord? Now it's different. And, there's, and we, we open the table of the Lord to those who give evidence of being believers. Why? Again, because the cup and the, and the bread, when we partake of it, are, are, are signs and seals that we are in union with Christ and that we are receiving the blessing from that union. And so that is not for everybody. We do not throw open the doors of the Lord's table to everybody, but only to those who can give a credible profession of faith in Christ. Well, I suffice then that the, or I, I suppose then that the, the question in the Heidelberg Catechism is vindicated biblically, right? That not everyone is welcome to the Lord's table, but only those who are believers in Christ. As I think about this sermon, my friends, and as I thought about the, the sermon uh, throughout the week, uh, I came up with these points of application. And uh, as I thought of these, I thought about reasons people give for not coming to communion, for not participating in the Lord's Supper. And as you can see, the more I thought, the more I came up with. And uh, yeah, I told my, my, my children that my, my sermon has nine applications tonight. So there are nine reasons that I give there uh, that came to my mind why people do not come to the Lord's Supper. And as we think about who should come to the Lord's Supper, I think it's appropriate for us to contemplate 
some of these reasons. And again, the more I thought, the more I came up with. So work with me through this list then of reasons people give for not coming to the Lord's table. Now the reason, the first reason is just this. It's the obvious one, right? I'm not a believer. There are people in church who know that they're not Christians. They're, they're not a believer. I, I would hope that there's nobody like that in church this evening. But you know your heart, right? And this question from the Catechism, again, is addressed to you personally. It's not asking, what do I think about you? Because I, I can't know. But you, between you and God, if you have to say this evening, well, I'm not a Christian, and so I don't participate in the Lord's Supper. Well, what are you saying about yourself then, my friend? And, and think about this carefully. Because then you're saying that I'm pleased with myself, right? The Catechism teaches us that the Lord's Supper is for those who are displeased with themselves. But if you're not a believer this evening, then you're saying, I'm pleased with myself. And I don't trust that my sins are pardoned through the sacrifice of Christ. Maybe you don't believe you have sins. It's hard to know what to say to someone like that, isn't it? You know, for myself as a, as a pastor, this, this week, I stood uh, in the cold at the Everest Cemetery here, and we watched uh, the coffin uh, lower into the earth. And dear friend, if you're here this evening and you're not a believer, I know you weren't there with me, but what do you suppose that you have in your life and in your worldview, your belief system, that will prepare you or that will see you through that experience? Of course, of course, it's not really experience, is it, of being lowered into the grave, but to see it is an experience. And if you can confess this evening with, with that kind of readiness that I'm not a believer, and therefore I don't participate in, the, in communion, all is not well. In fact, you're in a very frightening situation because death will come. It'll come sooner or later. And what do you have then to answer that? What do you have in the face of that? I, I really would, would ask you to, to consider and to reflect upon that this morning or this evening and to repent of that to put your trust in Christ and to come to the Lord's table. And so reason one, my friends, is rejected. It's not a reason not to come to the Lord's table. Are you saying well, a person who's not a believer can come to the Lord's table? No. My friend, you don't have a right to be an unbeliever. You don't have a right to be unconverted. God's call is on your life and he's ready to receive you and to forgive your sins. And so, repent of your unbelief. Put your trust in Christ. And then participate in communion. So that's the first reason. Now the second reason is, is related to it. And this is a person who says, well, I'm not sure that I am a believer. I am not sure that I am a believer. What can we say to such a person? Well, I, I think the catechism really gives us uh, such a, a good way to proceed here because I would ask such a person, 
Are you displeased with yourself? Yeah, just that first line from the catechism really cuts right between the believer and the unbeliever because you have some believers who are unsure of their state of salvation. They, they, they doubt, right, if they're really a Christian or not. They hate sin. They love the Lord Jesus Christ. They certainly don't want to walk in the ways of the world. But for whatever reason, they're uncertain of it. And so when we ask them, are you displeased with yourself? They say, oh, yes. I'm terribly displeased with myself. Well, then, do you trust that your sins are forgiven you only for the sake of Christ? Will you do something to forgive your sins yourself? Will you bring something to God? Will you put money in God's hand so he'll forgive you your sins? Well, no, I can't do that. So you have to trust in Christ completely for the salvation of your soul? You see, my friends, that sounds very much like a believer. In fact, it sounds very much like that Canaanitish woman, remember, who we preached on some time back, who came and said, Lord, Help me. That's the, that was the extent of her prayer. Now, on the other hand, you have people who say, well, I'm not sure if I'm a believer, and so I don't participate in communion, and frankly, I don't want to talk about it, and I don't really care all that much about communion. You see, that's a very different kind of person, isn't it? Now you have a person who doesn't want to confront the reality of their sin, and so they hide behind this doubt. They hide behind this uncertainty, and when the pastor comes and asks them, are you resting on the promise of salvation in Christ? They dodge the question by just throwing up this, well, I'm not sure. I don't know. And honestly, my friends, I've heard this so many times in my life. And it's one of the most discouraging things for a pastor when we get down to right, the real issues of life and I ask that question and people say, well, I just don't know. That's not an acceptable answer. That's not an acceptable answer. Now, I also put on the outline there the, a question from the Westminster Larger Catechism because it really has so much wisdom in it, right? When it talks about, may one who doubts of his being in Christ come to the Lord's Supper. And it gives the, uh, it gives the, the answer. But do notice what it says there. It says, one who doubts of his being in Christ or of his due preparation uh, may have true interest in Christ though he be not yet assured thereof. And in God's account hath it, if he be duly affected with the apprehension of the want of it. In other words, if he's sorry for the fact that he's not certain about it, and he sincerely, unfeignedly desires to be found in Christ and to depart from iniquity, and so on. You can read the rest of that. So there you have it, right? The Lord's Supper is given specifically for the purpose of weak Christians. And so if you have a sincere desire to follow Christ, you hate sin, then the Lord's Supper is for people like you. It is to strengthen your faith. And if you want to come and speak with, with me about resolving some of the doubts that linger, we can do that. But my friends, be very careful that you don't hide behind that doubt because you don't want to confront the call of Christ on your life. And you want to just keep living the way you've been living so again, reason two, I'm not sure that I'm a believer, is also rejected. Repent of your unbelief and come to Christ and come to the Savior. The third question is, I am not a strong, or the third reason given. Again, very closely related, but still different. I am not a strong believer. Right? You, you hear this sometimes that, well, the Lord's Supper is for those Christians who are, who are strong in the faith. It's for those real Christians. And I'm such a weak believer 
this person doesn't doubt whether or not he's a believer, but he or she doesn't see, they don't rise up to the level of where they think they ought to be. I am not a strong believer. And now, my friends, again, I come back to the question I want to say to such a person, oh, you're not a strong believer? So you are displeased with yourself? Is that right? You're displeased with yourself. Well, my friends, again, the Lord opens his table for just such people. Why, what would I think if you came to me and said, I'm a believer, and I'm very pleased with myself. I serve the Lord with great zeal. My friends, that's the Pharisee. Lord, right, he says, I am not a sinner like these other men, and especially not like this publican over here in the corner. God says, my friend, come, come. It's for you. I'll never forget this, this rather touching story of a, of a man, an elder in, in Scotland. And in Scotland, you know, they have a rail, right? And you come up to the rail, and, and, and the Lord's Supper is administered to you there. The minister hands you a bread and wine. And as the, as the bread came by, this one, one young lady uh, was, was, she was crying. She was obviously feeling very poorly of herself. And, and when the bread came, she let it pass. She, she gave it. She let it go by. She didn't take any. And, uh, and one of the older men standing next to her saw her. And he took the bread and he said, Take it, lassie. It's for sinners. Take it, lassie. As they say in Scotland. It's for sinners. My friend, if you, if you, if you say, I'm not a strong believer, it's like saying, I'm too sick to go to the hospital. I'm too sick to take my medicine. The Lord's Supper is spread for you. But again, repent of your lack of strength as a believer and come to the table of the Lord. Reason number four, the fourth reason. People who say, I have committed a sin in the past for which I cannot be forgiven. People have memories and they remember what they've done in the past. And they said, I cannot participate in communion. I cannot be forgiven for what I've done. Now, my friend, I have a very simple question for you this evening. Who told you that? Who told you that your sin cannot be forgiven? Be sure of this. It was Satan. You gave your ear to Satan. Because the devil will tell you that your sin cannot be forgiven. Now, I know some of us have done things that are unspeakable. You cannot even mention them. It's tucked away in your memory. And the devil makes sure that you never forget it. Why? Because the devil has one purpose in his life, my friends, and that's to keep you away from Christ. And if he can do that, by constantly bringing back to your memory that sin or that or sins, then he'll succeed in his purpose. And I ask you tonight, my friends, is the blood of Christ enough to cleanse your sin? I don't know what you've done in your life. You don't have to tell me. But I ask you tonight, is the blood of Christ sufficient to cleanse away that sin? Answer me before the Lord, my friends. Answer me with what you know of the Scripture. Is the blood of Christ sufficient to cleanse away that sin?
You know the answer, and I know the answer. If you answer that in the negative, you blaspheme the blood of Christ. It is sufficient. You can be forgiven. And Christ says, if you confess your sins, I am faithful and just to forgive your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Again, I have found people, my friends, who have used past sins as an excuse not to confront the claims of the gospel. But that will not work. The blood of Christ is sufficient to cleanse us from every sin. Reason number five is closely related to it. There are others who say, I am living in a sin right now for which I, which I cannot defeat. I cannot gain the victory over it. Again, my friends, who told you that you can't get the victory over that sin? Again, my friends, the devil has one purpose, to keep you away from Christ. And if he can convince you that you never can gain the victory over whatever sin you struggle with, then he has you in his grip. But the call of Christ comes to you tonight, my friends, with strength. You can gain the victory. And so in this particular reason, I I don't direct you now to the blood of Christ so much, although certainly to look at the blood of Christ is to find strength to gain the victory over our sins, but to look at the power of the Spirit of God, which every believer receives when they are united to Christ. When you believe in Christ, there is that union established between Christ and your soul. And the greatest gift that we receive is the power of the Spirit of God himself. And he takes up residence in our soul. And I ask you, my friends, that sin of which you are still in the practice of, can the Spirit of God not give you the victory over that sin? Again, only the devil tells you that you cannot gain the victory over that sin. I'm telling you, based on the Word of God, my friends, that with the power of the Spirit of God, and yes, with your own power as well, you need your own resolve and your own discipline, but yielding yourself to the Spirit of God, taking up your sword and fighting that battle, you can gain the victory over that sin. And you can repent of it. And you can participate in the Lord's Supper. And so, my friend, reasons five and six, and in terms of sin, also are rejected. The blood of Christ can forgive you. The Spirit of Christ can give you the victory. And so repent of that sin and come to the table of the Lord. And isn't it interesting, my friends, that even at the table of the Lord we receive strength to fight the very sin that holds us in its grip. Reason number seven. More practical reason here, reason number seven, I am not a member of this church. Yes, it's true that uh, we, we limit the Lord's Supper to those who are members of this church or, or some Bible-believing church, as it says in our church order. But again, this excuse also doesn't work, my friends. You know, we see the practice sometimes in churches of young men and young women, and they, they come to the years of discretion, as we call it, right? Uh, and, and they get older and older, and they never choose to join the church. They seem to kind of just float in limbo. Uh, they, they were baptized in the church. They they don't have a problem with the church, or at least no theological problem, but they never end up joining the church. They never end up committing to the church. And that's not a healthy thing. 
And so again, I reject this, this reason, number seven, for not participating in communion. The obvious answer is become a member of the church. Commit to a church, if not this one, some Bible-believing, reformed-minded church. Commit to it. Enter into the life of it. Come under the discipline of that church. Come under the teaching of it. And participate in communion. My friends, it is not a healthy thing at all. When the uh, elders come and, and with, the, with the bread and with the wine, and you let it pass you by. Again, Christ comes in the communion, and you might say he, he, he presses the issue. Right? Where are you with God? And if you could say, well, I just, I'm not a member of the church. Again, it sounds to me like you don't want to confront the claims of Christ on your life. Your parents brought you to baptism, but now that you're your own person with your own mind and your own decision-making capacity, you just kind of do nothing. Well, my friends, be assured that there are only two ways, right? There's no middle ground where you can just kind of float, right? Either you are for me or you are against me, says God. And so the church membership question does have to be resolved before you can participate in communion. But resolve it. Seal the deal, as it were. So, church membership. Reason number, I don't know which one I'm on anymore. Reason number six, seven, eight. Another one uh, that I've heard people say. I hardly dare say this one. I'm too afraid of what people will think. I've heard this one with my own ears. I don't participate in communion because I'm too afraid of what people will think. Now, my friends, when, when the elders come by with a tray of bread and with the tray of wine, it is Christ himself coming with, with the offer of his covenant before you. Again, remember the sermon that we had on on Abimelech and, and Isaac. Remember, they had that dispute, but then Abimelech came with that covenant that he, he was, uh, he made that overture, right, of a covenant to Isaac. Well, in the same way, don't see the elders, but see the Lord Jesus Christ bringing trays of bread and wine. And again, don't look at the bread and the wine for now, but think of what they represent. It's a covenant sealing ceremony. And he comes to you with this covenant, which you need because you're a sinner. And to think that you'd be afraid of what other people might think is, is, a, is a monstrously foolish idea that should never enter your, your, your mind. There's too much at stake. Again, when you let that bread and that wine pass you, it's, it's an insult to the grace of God represented to us in those signs. Now, some people may say, and again, I'll, I'll just include this with, that they are at odds with a fellow believer. Now, you'll do notice that in 1 Corinthians 10, we talked about that, right? In verse 17, that the Lord's Supper is also a, mark, a sign of this horizontal union that we have with other believers. So if you have a grudge against a fellow believer, that's true. It would be uh, 
profaning the bread and the wine uh, to, to partake of communion under those circumstances. But even there, my friend, the obvious solution right, is to make it right. Make it right. Go to that brother. Confess your fault or, or at least resolve whatever the grudge is between you and then come and partake of the Lord's Supper. But it is true that when we partake of communion, there is that horizontal aspect to it that we must not forget. And so it is, a, it is again, a, a reason to think about. Make it right, resolve the issue you have with a fellow believer, and then come to the Lord's table. So my friends, these reasons that I've given now are all rejected. These are not valid reasons for not participating in the Lord's Supper. This last one is a valid reason, and that is I am a child. Children, I'm looking at you tonight now. In this church, we do not practice what is often called pedo-communion, child communion. Now, children, listen very carefully. This does not mean that you do not need the Lord Jesus Christ, that you do not need that union with him, because that's not limited to any age or any level of maturity. You may come to Christ at, the, at your youngest days. You may sing from your youngest days, Jesus loves me. This I know, for the Bible tells me so, and the Bible does tell you so. You may exercise faith in Christ. You may repent of your sin. There's no age limit, age requirement on that. But in the Reformed churches, my friends, we have recognized that the sacrament of the Lord is not something in which the participants are passive. In baptism, it's a sign of that, uh, again, a sign of our union with Christ, but it is a sign of uh, the, the, the participant in it is, is passive. They're receiving something from God. But in the act of communion, and we, we've talked about this, the participant is active, right? Your faith is reaching out and taking hold of the body and blood of Christ, which is the atonement of Christ, his blood shed to take away my sin. And the apostle has said, let a man examine himself, and so let him come. And so that examination before the Lord's table and that active reaching out and taking hold of God at the Lord's Supper is something that we limit to more mature believers. Now, I'm telling you, uh, this is not an easy issue. Frankly, I'll tell you that it's easier to defend the practice of infant baptism than it is of, of not giving communion to children. Nevertheless, this has been the decision of our churches. Some people would say our churches push it off too late because... In our churches, we have applied this general principle by saying that children will, will go through a confession of faith class, will make public profession of faith, and then will be admitted to membership and communion in the church. And other churches would, would say, you know, that's too old and too late, you know, push that down to age 12. Again, I think men in our church would come back and say, and I think I, I would say the same thing, is that, you know, before a person has passed through their teen years, have they really thought about anything Right? I mean, they, are they really capable of examining themselves uh, in, in, in a way to, to bring them to the Lord's Supper? Again, these are difficult issues. Uh, um, of course, nobody's arguing for infant communion, right? That's impossible, right? You can't give a piece of bread to an infant, right? So it's not really, because oftentimes we're saying, well, you believe in infant baptism, why don't you practice infant communion? Well, that's not even a possibility. And I think even the the, the fact that we can't do infant communion teaches us something, right? That a more mature believer 
eats and drinks the, the meal that God prepares for his children. But at any rate, children, I want to make that clear to you this evening, really clear, that just because you don't come to communion doesn't mean you don't have that union with Christ that every believer has by faith. Now, of course, that union with Christ is only for those who repent of their sins and believe in Christ, right? You don't just have that automatically just because you're in a Christian family. But still, there is no age or minimum age requirement for that, right? Even the youngest child can put their trust in Jesus, and you should do so, and you should do so often. And the Lord Jesus Christ loves the little children. Well, my friends, I, I leave those reasons with you then. And think about it now, where does that leave us? Where does that leave us as God's people? Well, it leaves us in one place. It leaves us displeased with ourselves. That's always where the examination of our own souls leaves us. It leads us to be displeased with ourselves. Nevertheless, trusting that all our sins are pardoned only for the sake of what Christ has done on our behalf. And that's the only place we can come to, my friends. That's the only way we can participate in communion and find a blessing, is to come as that Canaanitish woman and to say, Truth, Lord, I'm a dog. Yet even the dogs eat the crumbs which fall from the master's table. And I pray, my friends, that by the work of the Spirit in our hearts, we would come to that place every time again when that table is spread and we rejoice to eat and drink with God our Savior. Let us pray. Almighty God and merciful Father, we know that it is an unspeakable blessing to have the Lord's Supper again and again in our churches. And Lord, we know that we often manufacture excuses and reasons because we oftentimes do not want to confront the claims of the gospel in our life, but the Lord's Supper brings it to a head. It forces us to confront these truths. And now, Lord, as your people, we come before you, and not with any reasons why we should come to the table, because all those reasons have been taken out of our hands. And we have nothing left. We have no plea, no reason to give. Except this, Lord, that the Lord Jesus Christ gave his life as a sacrifice for our sin. So that we can be received by you. We can be taken into a covenant with you. A covenant of friendship. A covenant that is based upon that sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Who makes all these things possible. And him alone. And so, Lord, we come. And we're not celebrating communion this evening. But in a sense, Lord, we are, because by faith we take hold of this Christ. By faith we take hold of his broken body and of his poured out blood. And we find in it a full and a free forgiveness from all our sins. Lord, bring each one of us to this place, this happy place in our life. And we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's turn now to number 388. In the red hymnal, 388, rejoice, rejoice, believers, and let your lights appear. The evening is advancing, and darker night is near. The bridegroom is arising, and soon he will draw nigh. Up, watch in expectation, at midnight comes the cry. And what follows in the four verses of 388 in the red hymnal?
receive the blessing of the Lord and go in peace. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance on you and give you peace. Amen.